if you, uh, if you brought your Bibles, you can open them to the book of Esther. Esther is uh, not too, too hard to find. My mom used to teach me when, uh, uh, if you open your Bible up right in the middle, you should be uh, closer in this book called Psalms, and then just go two back in front of Psalms, and you'll find this book of Esther. Esther is this incredible story um, in the Old Testament. It, it, is, it is this kind of uh, classic, classic literature, and and it's filled with, with images and, and all of these kind of things. And one of the things you guys know about our, our church is we love God's Word and, and want to embrace God's Word. So I want you to open it up. We're, we'll have the words on the screen, but we're going to read a lot of Esther today, just, just straight from the text. And, and I don't want to introduce it too much. I don't want to explain it too much because this story will actually kind of, uh, kind of explain itself as, as we dig into it together. So if you've turned there, we'll go ahead and put it on the screen too. I'm going to read uh, Esther chapter 1. We're going to just start, dig, just dig straight into it and read to you the first nine verses. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of, of Persia and Medea, as well as princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days, a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were in the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the, the palace garden. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings, which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of porphyry and uh, marble and mother of pearl and other costly stones. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. And at the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. All right, so as we begin this story, we know one thing and one thing for sure. It is good to be the king. Am I right? If there are two words that describe Xerxes, and you get this picture of him, even in, in the first nine verses, the author, the writer, is, is painting a very clear picture of this king. And if there are two words that describe him, it is the words, no limits. There's no limits to his wealth. There's no limits to, to his excess. He holds a banquet for all the nobles of the country that lasts six months. And when that banquet's finished, he holds a second banquet for all of the citizens of the fortress of Susa, Susa which is modern-day Iraq, the capital city of his entire empire. He holds a seven-day celebration, and everyone is invited to gold couches and cups and expensive fabric and precious stones. But there are no limits to his behavior either. There's no limits placed on drinking. 
And there's no limit to his power. Xerxes at the time is the ruler of the largest kingdom the world has seen up to this point. The Persian Empire stretches from India all the way across the Middle East through Eastern Europe all the way down to Africa. King Xerxes gets what he wants when he wants it. For King Xerxes to use biblical language, his kingdom has come and his will be done. Are you with me? Let's keep reading. In the next uh, couple of verses, beginning in verse 10. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, he told the seven eunuchs uh, attended, uh, uh, who attended him, their names were uh, Balin, Biffer, Bomber, uh, Berendori, Dwellin, Kili, Fili, and Thorin, um, or something like that, to bring Queen Vashti to him with a royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. And this made the king furious, and he burned with, what's the word? Anger. His kingdom has come, his will be done, until... Scripture says that Xerxes is in high spirits, that kind of no-limit behavior. He's, he's drunk as a skunk is the actual Hebrew translation. And the implication is that, that if he had been in his right mind, maybe he would make a different choice. But he orders his queen, the beautiful Vashti, brought to him with a crown on her head. So Scripture says, so all men could gaze on her beauty. Guys, have, uh, have, your, have your single unmarried guy friends ever tried to get you in trouble with your wife? Have you ever had that happen? You, you guys, you've you got some single friends that, that still aren't married, and when you hang out with your single friends, they're, they're always trying to get you in trouble. Uh, you're the man of the house, aren't you? Have you ever heard these kind of, this kind of goading, this kind of uh, 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 troublemaking sometimes our single friends can make? Uh, you're, you're the man of the house, aren't you? You're not, you're not whipped, are you? Why don't you just tell that wife of yours what to do? Tell her you can come home whenever you want. When uh, you're, you're a man, you're a man by yourself, aren't you? Who's lord of this castle after all? Have you, you know what I'm talking about. And it is as if Xerxes' friends kind of goad him into this, this thing. And it's hard to know for sure, and it's not exactly clear in Scripture. But it seems that the king Xerxes orders Vashti in front of all of these men. It says with her crown on, but I wonder if he meant only wearing a crown. And it would have been custom for Persian women not to present themselves to men in any way shape or form. At least we can tell that the errand he sends his queen on is less than noble, less than honorable. And Vashti, to her immense credit, refuses, and he burns with furious anger. 
Oh, no, she didn't, is what he was thinking. There's trouble in paradise. And it may not seem like that big a deal to us, but for Vashti, this was a life and death decision. Can you see that? Because to deny the king would have been punishable by death. The king was obviously used to getting what he wanted, when he wanted it. His kingdom come, his will be done. Yet Vashti refuses him. And scripture doesn't say why, but it seems clear that, that she refuses to be treated as a possession. She refuses to be treated as, as property. She refuses to be treated as a thing. She refuses to be treated as an object. So I want to step out of the story just for a minute. We'll come back to it. But I want to talk about this idea of treating people as if they are things. I recently heard um, this great uh, kind of new age theologian. His name is Alan Hirsch. And he talked about this idea of, of what is essentially objectification. And he explained it in terms of excarnation. Now, you've heard of incarnation if you've been in the church very long. Incarnation is, is uh, this idea of, of, of wrapping in flesh. Uh, we sing this song at Christmas, sometimes the words, the incarnate deity. You know what I'm saying? And it is this idea that, that the God of the universe came in the form of a baby child so that this God, it, he became incarnate. This God of the universe wrapped himself in flesh, incarnate, God in flesh. Are you with me? So if incarnate means in flesh, excarnate means to remove flesh. Excarnation is this, this burial practice of removing flesh and organs. It is, it is this kind of embalming that happens. Excarnation is what happens uh, uh, when a buzzard lands on roadkill. Are you with me? Do you get the picture of this? It is the stripping of the bones. It is, it is defleshing. It is the removal of flesh. And objectification is excarnation. It is a reduction a removal of that part of us that makes us human. Are you with me? When you excarnate someone, they are no longer a human. They are no longer a person. They become only an object. They become a thing. Are you with me? So I want to give you some examples. Text messaging and email. When we text message and email, I know it seems like a simple thing, but when we send emails and text messages, and some of you older adults, you get this very clearly, it's different than a phone call, right? Because people are no longer people worthy of our time or our investment. Sure, you're worthy of a text, but you're not worthy of a call. See how this works. People are, are just there to help us get done what needs to be done. I don't want to be distracted by whatever's going on in your life or some other conversation or some other distraction. I just need what I need. Are you with me? Let's go deeper. When you see people driving down Highway 65, 
Do you see people or do you see obstacles to be avoided or gone around? When you go out to lunch today, will you see those who serve you as people or are they there just to be used by you? Do you see how excarnation creeps into our world? Screens excarnate us too if we're not careful. Instead of going out and investing in real people, instead of going out and investing in real relationships, we, we settle sometimes for fake relationships on TV or in movies. How many of you know every detail of, of your favorite show, of, the, of your favorite characters on your favorite show, but can't remember your neighbor's name? Excarnation. Do you see how that works? Screens, if we let them, can excarnate us. They, they can make us less than human. Racism works the same way, right? Racism strips the humanity off of a person and reduces, a reduction reduces them to a color. Pornography is the same way. Maybe, maybe one of the best examples. In pornography, women and men, we, they, they aren't seen as women and men anymore. Do you see that? Um, uh, literally, the flesh is stripped off them and they become objects to satisfy our, our sinful cravings and, and desires of the mind. The, the men and women aren't seen as someone's daughter or son or mother or father, right? We don't see them that way. They aren't even human anymore. They have become things to be used. That's excarnation. That's objectification. And it's not just porn or racism or text messaging. It happens in ideas too. When people have differing ideas about sexual orientation, when people have different alternative views or vote differently than us, do you view that person as somehow less than human? Um, I know uh, some of you probably seen on Facebook, there's this bunch of stuff going on in Facebook about flags. Uh, I, I, I saw one comment that it looks like my Facebook is having an argument between the Confederate Army and Skittles. You know, like it's just, um, there, there's all this confusion about we have these competing ideas, right? And everyone wants to reduce a person down to an idea. Have you seen that? They're not a person with a differing opinion. That opinion is who they are. Do you struggle to love those who you disagree with? Is it because you have reduced them down far less than a full, complex person to just a belief or just a flag? That's excarnation, and we have become experts at stripping people of their humanity. And I think we've gotten it backwards. 
And what and what's horrible is that the world looks at the church as the as the kind of excarnation experts, right? The most the most ruthless, the least loving, the least accepting. And yet, in, in, in the words of Jesus, in the in the, the mannerisms and the actions of Jesus, he gives us this whole different example. Even in his teachings, uh, I, I would I would phrase it this way. But I think, I think the objective of Jesus was to teach us that objects are to be used, not loved. Because that's one thing we have backwards. Objects and things are to be used, not loved. And people are to be loved, not used. Are you with me? I don't hear you. Are you with me? Yeah. Objects are to be used, not loved. People are to be loved, not used. So let's take this back to the story of Vashti and King Xerxes. When the king calls Vashti, she refuses to be a possession. She refuses to be an object for the king's pleasure. She refuses to be excarnated, refuses to have her flesh removed, her personhood, her womanhood removed. And the king burns with furious anger and then does the most rational thing any of us can imagine. Let's look in verse 13. Let's keep reading. He immediately consults, uh, King Xerxes immediately consults with his wise advisors who knew all the Persian laws and customs, for he always asked their advice. And the names of these men were sleepy, um, sneezy, happy, dot, grumpy, dopey, and bashful. These were the seven nobles of Persia and Medea. They met with the king regularly and held the highest positions in the empire. What must be done to Queen Vashti, the king demanded? What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders properly sent through his eunuchs? And Mimikon answered the king and his nobles, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king the slippery slope guy, right? Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Medea will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. So if it pleases the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive the proper respect from their wives. The king and his nobles thought this made good sense. So he followed Mimikon's counsel he sent letters to all parts of the empire, to each province in its own script and language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home and should say whatever he pleases. Amen. <clears throat> the king runs back to his drunken friends 
and essentially says, how can I force her to do what I want her to do when I want her to do it? And the wise Mimicon says, oh man, you're on a slippery slope, right? That's what he says. Wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Medea will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way and there will be no end to their contempt and anger. What he says is, don't you know women talk? We're going to be in trouble as soon as this word gets out. And so the king makes the most wise and rational decision he could possibly make and decrees a new law. And the message here, the teaching here, is that men will go to incredible lengths to avoid admitting when they're wrong. Because King Xerxes is the king of the largest empire the world has ever seen and sends a letter translated in every known language to every mailbox in the entire kingdom that says that every man should be the ruler of his own house and should say whatever he pleases. All he had to do was tell Vashti, I'm sorry, I was drunk, and I'm an idiot. But instead, <laughs> he makes a new law for the entire kingdom that says, no, men should be able to say whatever they want. And when this new law is published, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive what Aretha Franklin promised, right? What you want, baby, I got it. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, right? That is what this is about. And we're going to talk more about this this thing that these men think that they have earned and think that they have deserved. We're going to talk more about respect as, as we get deeper into, into this story. And so, so just get ready. That's coming. But what do we know? You can't force someone to respect you. You can't make a new law that says you will respect me now. It just doesn't work that way. And for us, the stage is set. Vashti is, is banished from the king's presence. She went from hosting royal banquets to, to just being out. And now a new, more worthy, more obedient, he hopes, queen is to be chosen. He needs a new star. Let's read this next chapter together. It's a little bit extended, so stay with me. But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, after his hangover had worn off, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. But his personal attendant suggested, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Haggai, the king's eunuch, in charge of the harem, will, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. After that, the young, women who most please, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. 
This advice was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. And at that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shimei. His family had been among those who, with King Jehoiachin of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadashah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, uh, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Haggai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids specially chosen from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. And every day, Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. Before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments. Six months with oil of, of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. And when it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take from the harem. That evening, she was taken to the king's private rooms, and the next morning, she was brought to the second harem where the king's wives lived. There, she would be under the care of uh, that guy, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. She would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. Esther was the daughter of Abihel, who was Mordecai's uncle. Mordecai had adopted his youngest cousin, Esther. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem, and she asked for nothing except what he suggested. And she was admired by everyone who saw her. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. To celebrate the occasion, sorry, there's one more verse there. To celebrate the occasion, uh, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. King Xerxes holds a royal pageant to find uh, uh, Vashti's replacement. And of all the beautiful women of the entire country, what are the chances that an orphaned, exiled Jewish girl would be chosen? The scripture says that Xerxes loved her more than any other. He is so delighted with her that he names her his own queen, placing Vashti's crown on her head and declaring, if you see this, a national holiday to celebrate her. In Hebrew, her name is uh, Hadassah, uh, which roughly translates to Myrtle. But um, that's just not going to do for a king's queen. So she goes by another name, 
the name of Esther, which in Persian translates star. We're going to keep reading Esther. And as we get deeper into this story, it's, it's going to come around to a question. Have you ever wondered, amidst the, the circumstances of your life, through, through the good and through the bad, have you ever stopped and asked yourself, is God really there? God is the only, uh, uh, Esther is the only book that, that we have in the Bible that God's not overtly or specifically mentioned. Did you know that? Yet Esther's story will answer the question, is God really there in profound and deep ways? It doesn't seem like the ideal situation for Esther right now, does it? We don't know that, it, that she was excited to go to the king or she was dreading go to the king. We just know that she is thrust into this situation. And yet in every twist and turn, every irony and fate, through every chance and circumstance, every tragedy, every crisis, every Supreme Court ruling, even when the future seems bleak and hopeless, God is there. Can I get an amen? And if God is there in Esther's story, on the white parts of the page, between the letters and in the margins, if God is in Esther's story, then he must be in yours and mine also. In just a moment, we're going to take a time of communion together, and we've set up some stations around the room. There's three stations, and the way we, we, we have done this is tried to make it a little bit um, uh, more formal and less formal at the same time. So we want to give you a chance to, to take communion literally together. So invite you to, as husbands and wives, to take communion together, friends to take communion together, families take communion together. And so we want to create space for you to be able to do that. I encourage you, encourage you, encourage you to do that. But also we recognize that sometimes there's a need of, for you just to confess your own sin, to spend some own time with, with God. And we invite you to that this space is there for that as well. We take the, the body of Christ in the form of the bread and the, and the blood of Christ in the form of the cup as it is poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And if you will, I'll, I'll say a prayer in just a moment, but I invite you to pray specifically for, for our nation and for our judges and for uh, uh, the different beliefs uh, of people in our country. Our world wants to kind of promote this idea that if I disagree with you, I can't love you or be your friend. And that's contrary to Scripture. That's contrary to the words of God. And now is, um, uh, if our Facebook pages are any indication, now is a confusing time. People are wondering, is, is God really there? Has God abandoned us? And in the words of Max Ocato, I invite you to a time of prayer, not despair. 
Because in Esther's story, it doesn't always seem clear how God is moving or how he's working. And sometimes things seem incredibly tough and there are disappointments and there are discouragements that happen. And in the midst of that, we are reminded that God has never abandoned us. So as you take communion today, pray for our nation. Pray for our people Pray for Christians everywhere and for churches to be places of of love. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for for your word, the power of your word. Father God, it is it is it is incredibly relevant today. It is it is timeless. And Father God, as you have been so faithful to Esther, even through her dark moments, we ask that you would be with us now in this place in our nation, and as, as we talk, have discussions about race and, and marriage with our friends and neighbors, Father God, give us your wisdom and give us the, the same concern and same compassion, the same love that you had for us, Father God. Let us exhibit that. Let us share that with everyone we meet and encounter. And Father God, as we talk uh, about a nation and world, let us introduce those we meet to a kingdom a new kingdom, a kingdom where your will is done. And so, Father God, we accept this role as as ambassadors. We know that the world is looking at us to see how we will respond and how we will act and how we will move. And so, Father God, place on us that burden of of being citizens, of being your own children in this place, brought here to usher into this world your kingdom. And Father God, the only reason we can occupy a position of, of, of being your children, the only way that, that we have been accepted into your kingdom, despite all of our sins and all of our shortcomings and all of our failings, is because of your son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us so that we would receive forgiveness and life. Father God, while we were still sinners, you sent your son, Jesus to die for us. And Father God, we remember that incredible act of sacrifice, that incredible act of love as we enter into this time of communion. Father God, we love you. And in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says, Amen. Why don't you stand? I invite you to share a time of communion.